Hello, listeners. Before we begin, a few brief content warnings. Although, as with our first Percy Jackson episode, we did our best to keep this one PG, we didn't do quite as well this time. So, that being said, this episode contains some mild profanity as well as discussion of canon typical violence and death. You might consider first having an adult listen to it and decide what they would consider appropriate and what they might wish to skip over. With all that in mind, now, here we go. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Classically Trained, a podcast where we discuss modern media that depicts the ancient Mediterranean world, its peoples, and its stories. I am Julia, your resident Greek literature person and linguist. And I'm Allison, your resident archaeologist and late antique scholar. Every time I introduce myself as a linguist, I think I should really stop introducing myself as a linguist because I'm not. Yeah, I was wondering about that. <laughs> but but philologist doesn't mean anything to the average person. That's true. Yeah. To be clear to any layman in the audience, and also any classists in the audience, I am not actually a linguist, and I know that I am not actually a linguist, but I also know that most laymen don't know the term philologist, and it means nothing to you, and I am simply trying to be hashtag relatable. Okay. Thank you. Um, yeah. We'll, we'll go with that then. Thank you for nodding in a humoring manner, Allison, <laughs> with my absolute bull, because... It's just how our friendship is, I think. <laughs> so today we are returning to Percy Jackson. We are talking about book two, The Sea of Monsters. Yes, we are. And since we already talked about one book of Percy Jackson, we don't need to really go over, I don't think, anything about like who Rick Riordan is or... Except that his name is pronounced Riordan and we pronounced it wrong. And by we, I mean me pronounced it well by and by you you mean google told you to pronounce it yeah, wrong. yeah i have always said riordan and see i've always said riordan which of course is incorrect but google validated me we're really sorry mr riordan we will pronounce your name correctly in this episode <laughs> but yes we don't need to go into like him and his whole deal and how these books happened if you are interested in that we recommend that you go listen to our first episode on Percy Jackson. Yep. Do you want to give us a summary? Yes, I shall do my utmost. Percy Jackson book two, The Sea of Monsters. And to be clear, these are not Percy Jackson and The Sea of Monsters. This is not Harry Potter. <laughs> it is Percy Jackson and the Olympians book two, The Sea of Monsters. It was published in 2006 by author Rick Riordan and details the further adventures of the title character Percy Jackson, who is the son of Poseidon, and who is looking forward to, at the beginning of the book, he is looking forward to returning to Camp Half-Blood, where he spends the summers with many other half-mortal, half-god children, including his good friend Annabeth, who is the daughter of Athena, and his satyr buddy Grover, who is actually not around. At the start of the book, Grover has gone off to find Pan and has found himself in hot water. Percy is having strange dreams about Grover. His mom is being all cagey about the him going back to camp. Everything's quite stressful at the outset. Percy quickly discovers that the reason that his mother's being so cagey is that the protections around Camp Half-Blood provided by the magical spirit of a dead 
ish half blood who lives in a tree are failing because the tree has been poisoned and there are monsters infiltrating the camp and it's not safe for him to go back. However, this doesn't stop him from returning because it's not particularly safe in the real world either. And he returns and discovers that everything in the camp has been overturned. Chiron, who runs the camp, has been summarily fired. There's a jackass named Tantalus running things right now. Everything is chaos. Quickly, Percy learns that probably the only means to fix things at the camp is to retrieve the mythical golden fleece, which coincidentally Grover has encountered on his travels and through their like dream bond, Percy manages to find out like where Grover is and therefore where the golden fleece is and goes off without permission on a quest to get it, following after another demigod, Clarice, who is the daughter of Ares. They all make their way to the fabled Sea of Monsters, the eponymous Sea of Monsters, (laughs) which is the kind of mythical ocean where heroes have their adventures, and makes his way to the island of the Cyclops Polyphemus, where Grover is being held captive and the Golden Fleece is hanging from a tree, being protected by a flock of carnivorous sheep. Percy encounters some difficulties on the way to this, but eventually arrives at the island, rescues Grover and Clarice, who has also gotten into trouble, steals back the fleece, flees the island, they return triumphant. Everything's great, and then the quote-unquote dead half-blood falls out of the tree. Everything's very complicated. I missed a huge amount of the plot in that. Yes, I think the only thing that's really important to add is that Percy discovers that a friend he has made at school is actually a Cyclops, who is his half-brother. Yes, Tyson. Yes, Tyson. And Tyson joins him on their adventure to go uh, get Grover in the Golden Fleece. Yeah, Um, it's... The problem with children's books and summarizing children's books is that it's very easy... Like, the plot is so straightforward mm -hmm. that it's very easy to just not talk about a lot of the peripheral stuff that happens, even though, of course, it's very important to the book. Yeah. But when summarizing, it's very easy to just... Like, I probably could have not mentioned the entire thing with Clarice. I probably could have not mentioned Chiron at all. I didn't mention Luke. They have another encounter with Luke, their former friend and ally, son of Hermes, who has betrayed the Half-Bloods and is now working for Kronos, who I also did not mention. Yeah. The, like, whole overarching plot of the series is happening in the background, but... It's not super relevant to the stuff that is immediately happening, other than that Luke is the one who poisoned the tree. Yeah. The Tyson thing is important just because I want to specifically talk about him, and we just sort of have, like, some specific things as well to say about the Cyclops in general and how they get treated. Yes, we have some things to say about that. Um, Um, And actually, you know what? That is a good transition, because I think I... Well, so before we get into that, I just want to quickly say, Mm -hmm. I guess we didn't say whether we liked this book. Do you, I mean, obviously we both like it. Yeah. Do you like it more or less than the first one? Oh, or that's just differently? A, that's a hard question. I feel like differently. I think some of the books that I like uh, like more in the series are some of the later books, which we'll obviously talk about when we get to. But I feel like this one, yeah, I just sort of, I feel like I have the same sort of enjoyment for it that I have for Lightning Thief. Um, yeah. Like it's pretty similar. I'll say that, I enjoyed the first, like, third less as I was start just getting into it. I was mm, like, I yeah. don't know, this one's not as fun as The Lightning Thief. And then when I really got into it and got towards, like, the back half, back two-thirds of the book, I was yeah. like, actually, I, I, like, read it really quickly and 
like I got really involved. I actually think I like the back half of this one better than I liked the back half of Lightning Thief, but I liked the front half of this one less. Yeah, well, I noticed actually what surprised me when I was reading this is it takes him like a hundred pages to go on the quest. Like, it's like a full over a third of the way through the book until he actually gets on the quest. Yes, yeah, so which kind a lot of surprised of me. Um, but yeah, you like kind of need the setup, but it is sort of a little bit like it really starts moving once he gets on the quest. The first one was like maybe slightly too much quest, and this mm-hmm. one was maybe slightly not enough quest. <laughs> yeah. But that's okay. Like, ultimately, it's still a really enjoyable reading. Yeah. Okay. So, the first thing I wanted to start out with talking about is sort of one of the, the big thematic arcs through this book, which is about who is a monster. Yeah, okay, this is a which, big one. Which is really interesting to me, because, yeah, it comes up a lot. You get the introduction of Tyson, who is a cyclops, and, of course, later when they interact with Polyphemus the big angry sheep island cyclops yes and polyphemus is the cyclops in the odyssey yes he is an enemy and he is a monster but tyson is not framed as a monster he really cares about percy he really likes annabeth he never tries to like behave in a way that is monstrous towards other people but we get a lot of these lines sort of in contrast about specific humans in the book specifically about tantalus and also a little bit about luke where they are specifically referred to as monstrous. Like, there's a line when, like, I think Tantalus, near near the beginning of what Tantalus sort of does in this book, where Percy's like, geez, this guy is sure a heck of a lot more evil than a lot of the monsters I've met. Yeah, Um, which, I mean, for those not familiar with the story of Tantalus, he did kill and eat his own children. Yes, so this is actually the sort of mythology around Tantalus is a little bit complicated and convoluted. There's as different is, versions. As is most mythology. And also a lot of it, it seems to be brought up in a lot of different places. The sort of, as far as I can tell, the sort of traditional version of the story where like Tantalus chops up his children, feeds them to the gods, and then gets sent to the underworld and is unable to eat any food or drink despite being like tantalizingly close to it yes, hence where we get the word that seems to kind of be a, an amalgamation of a bunch of different myths so in the odyssey odysseus sees him when odysseus is in the underworld and it doesn't actually talk about why he's there it just describes this particular punishment and then we get a few other people who mention it like it's mentioned in orestes by euripides as sort of the broader curse on the house of Atreus, which we talked about, I believe, in our episodes on... I think in our episode on the mountain goats. Tantalus is the furthest forefather of the house of Atreus. He's the one who sort of starts the, like, curse, uh, essentially. He's the first person who does a really bad thing and results in everybody else having all of this misfortune. He's not the only cannibal in the family, but he was the first one. Yes, the first one. However, there. what's really interesting is, you know, so Pindar, who is a lyric poet from the classical period, so like roughly 500 BCE, maybe a little bit later than that. More like mid-400s. Yeah. He actually tells a bit of a different story. So he thinks that the child murder and then feeding to the gods isn't true. He describes this as a rumor that people made up because what happened is Poseidon actually just thought that Pelops, Tantalus' son, was super hot and wanted him for his boyfriend, and so took him away. 
this and happens. Then, and then Pindar Pindar also focuses on the fact that Tantalus is being punished because he stole nectar and ambrosia from the gods, and so like essentially betraying their hospitality. And also, so in Orestes and Pindar, they do not have this super like interesting punishment. There's just a rock hanging over his head. That's wow. the punishment. Yeah, it's super boring. That's boring. <laughs> it's like, why didn't you take like? There's a super cool punishment. Who in came this up with earlier... the cool punishment? Or like, why is it recorded? Well, it's first mentioned in Homer. It's, oh, it's the okay, Odyssey. Okay. Yeah, it's first mentioned in the Odyssey. So huh. the cool punishment already existed. They just went like with the rock hanging over the head. Also, okay, okay, Pindar. I don't think it's true that Tantalus killed his children and served them to the gods, sir. I'm pretty sure that none of this is true. I understand that the Greeks thought that all of this shit was historical, or, like, some of them did, but also, what a wild stance to take on, like, a version of a story that you just don't like very much so that you can write your own weird fanfiction about it. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure what the point of him bringing all of this up was, because I am not a Pindar expert. No, I don't know anything about the Greek lyric poets, which makes me probably a terrible Greek poetry person but i i'm not a greek poetry person so i get a pass here but yeah so what he sort of does what tantalus does in this book is he really he's just around to be mean and to gaslight like he literally just re re like he just remakes what is happening in order to punish percy i think it's really interesting that tantalus specifically is like constantly rewriting all of the stuff that's happening at the camp, like the birds, there's a point where they all get attacked by birds where this, while this chariot race is going on and Clarice just keeps like riding, Clarice who's the daughter of Ares, whereas Percy and Annabeth go try to get rid of the birds and then Tantalus is just like, oh, it was your two's fault for driving the chariots badly that the birds showed up. So you guys are terrible and congrats to Clarice. And I think this is really interesting in a children's book because it, and Rick Riordan does this in other places. He really like plays on on the sense of like a child's agency and children's sort of lack of agency and people not understanding their perspective and rewriting their perspective. We've wandered really far from where we started, which was the concept of monstrosity. So do we want to like go back? back? Yeah, because we got off on a, a tangent about Tantalus. Who is the real monster? Yes. Well, also, so this book does a lot of sort of interesting foreshadowing with Luke, which I can't really go into because we're not sort of at the future books yet. But Luke's sort of descent into evil is definitely portrayed in this book quite a bit. And his actions are just described in several places, I think, as monstrous. But he's not sort of like, he definitely is sort of in contrast to Tantalus, like, the fact that his father Hermes comes and tries to get Percy to help Luke out, and, like, the fact that there's still this person who cares about Luke quite a bit, and also the fact that we see that Annabeth still cares about Luke quite a bit. Well, and that Percy doesn't write him off. Like, he's, he kind of has, to a degree, like, he's skeptical when Mm -hmm. Hermes asks him, and afterwards he's, like, He's not coming back. But Percy still agrees to reach out. Like, Percy is a very forgiving protagonist. Yeah. In a way, which makes a lot of difference. Yeah. And I think that Riordan does a really good job with his management of Luke, because Luke manages to be both monstrous, but also still a person. 
Yeah, he's a good, complex character. There's a lot going on with him. You can really tell when a writer has developed an antagonist as an antagonist rather than as a villain, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, Kronos is a villain. Yeah. He's just evil. Yes. He wants to take over the world because he's evil. Yeah. Luke wants to help Kronos for, like, complicated Luke reasons. Yeah. He has a whole personality, and he is an antagonist. He almost murders Percy in relatively cold blood, like, several times in this book. Yes. And, like, he he very coldly poisons the tree and, like, destroys the only safe haven for half-bloods that exists, basically. But, like, his character is still... It still exists. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, f- I feel like the way that the, all of the characters sort of function in these books is sort of works really well with the source material that it's drawing upon because you do sort of see this in the way that different like ancient Greek and Roman authors talk about these characters like yeah Kronos is basically just evil and then you sort of go step down a level to the gods who have sort of these personal motivations and then you sort of step down another level to the humans who are more human and like yeah that's really sort of portrayed very well yeah well I guess well so the step down from the step down from the gods is heroes yeah demigods and otherwise to be clear not all heroes are demigods like Odysseus is not the descendant of a god at least recently but they are favored by the gods and demigods are like virtuous 80% of the time but they have their fatal flaws, which we'll get into a yeah. little later. And well, to be clear, though, they're virtuous in in a it, human way. Well, they're they're virtuous with specific reference to what the ancient Greek authors thought were virtuous. Yes. So they do a lot of stuff that we would view as morally abhorrent, but it would not necessarily have been viewed as morally abhorrent by the people who are writing about them. Yeah. So like, it's not a concept of heroic that like we it's not the same concept of heroic as our modern concept of heroic yeah i mean that stuff is also all contextualized too like odysseus for example does a lot of stuff during the trojan war that is like really underhanded stuff but that gets framed as acceptable because it's in the context of war but on his way home in the odyssey some of the stuff that he does is a reflection of his Iliadic self that then gets framed as the wrong thing to do out of the context of war. Mm, Yeah. I could list examples, but it doesn't really matter. Suffice to say that even the Greeks were aware that under certain circumstances, some things might be considered acceptable and even heroic, that under more normal circumstances would not be at all. So that's... That's something to keep in mind, especially when we're talking about heroes and heroic narrative, because there are certain things that are, like, acceptable to do. For example, when you're on a big quest yeah. that you couldn't do when you're at home. Yeah. I think this actually might be a good place to talk about hubris, since we're already talking about okay. heroes. Can I say um, one more thing about Luke? Absolutely. Before we move on from him and him being evil. So, in the first book, in the first episode, we praised the way that Riordan has Luke be the mouthpiece for this sort of critical view of, like, Western civilization. Woo! (laughs) 
And and that it was nice to have that perspective, but in this book, it kind of just reads as like because Luke is blatantly the antagonist in this one and is doing really nasty stuff and being mean, when he says these things, it just reads as a misguided point of view. Yeah. And like framed as a misguided point of view that like the West the concept of the West is kind of rancid. So some of the brownie points that we gave Riordan for this for the first book, I think that he earns some, like, negative brownie points for it in this one. Yeah, there is this sort of leaning on, like, the concept of Western civilization is, like, good and yeah. great, which we can talk more about a little bit later as well. Yeah. Anyways. Uh, okay, so let's move on. Yeah, to, talk, to just sort of, like, tie this into a broader discussion about heroes, there's a point where Annabeth asks Percy to tie her to the mast of the ship when they're going by the siren so that she can like learn the deepest truth about herself and learn her fatal flaw which is hubris um and so Annabeth's interpretation of hubris or like the the interpretation that Rick Riordan puts forth in the book is that it's pride however this is not really the ancient Greek conception of hubris. Well, no. What he says, what Annabeth says, Mm -hmm. is that it's about believing that you can do it better than someone else, than anyone else. Okay, so I was reading in the Oxford Classical Dictionary, and they had a very particular opinion about what hubris meant. I'm sure there's some scholarly disagreement about this. But that the idea of hubris is about power relationships and using power inappropriately. So either you are like a person in power who is being cruel for the sake of being cruel and because you believe you are superior, or sometimes maybe that you're somebody who is not in power, but you're sort of essentially trying to claim some sort of power you don't have or act like inappropriately for your social role. So it's not so much about pride more broadly like it has these very specific connotations to do with power relationships yes so i know a bit about this actually because my so my undergraduate thesis was about raped women Mm -hmm. in greek tragedy and the crime of hubris was a legal term in athens yes and it was used it, it gets used for rape, among other things. Mm. So I had to read a bunch about hubris and what constitutes hubris in the Athenian legal system, which is where I think the Oxford Classical Dictionary is getting their concept. Because yes. there's kind of two kinds of hubris. There is the, that legal kind that is very much to do with either being a ruler and abusing your power, which is considered inappropriate because rulers shouldn't abuse their power. Yeah. Or being somebody's equal in the social pecking order, Mm -hmm. but asserting yourself over them in an inappropriate way, which is usually, I think that's the more common one. So for example, committing a rape against somebody of equal social status to you, stealing someone else's property, beating somebody who is your equal, basically treating somebody who should be your equal as if they are lower than you. Mm, And you therefore have the right to do whatever you want to them. But there's also the more, like, religious concept of hubris Mm -hmm. that involves trying to behave as if you are immune to the, like, cosmological order of power 
you know, that's why things like what, for example, Sisyphus, who, like, defies death, mm-hmm. he, like, chains up the god of death, his crime is kind of one of hubris, because he's behaving as if he is above the natural order of things, which is that humans die. Yeah. And therefore above the, like, will of the gods. So there's... And I think that Annabeth's flaw is closer to that. Yeah. Although I will say, and what the Oxford Classical Dictionary did mention as well, is that there is some... There is, to some extent, like, a christian influence on our like modern understanding of the word hubris oh yeah yes um, you know yeah. and it has to do it has well because it has a lot to do with like the sort of christian idea of like pride yeah like you know oh pride goes before the fall the idea of like you don't you like don't control your own life basically and it's like that's not really what it is it's it is really to do with status it's just that you can also falsely assert yourself status wise with the gods as easily as you can with other humans yeah yeah. Which is actually the same crime. Yes. And I mean, I think the thing is, is 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 it's sort of easy to read the way this gets portrayed, like, in both a Christianizing way and also a way that is sort of more in alignment with the, like, traditional sense of the term. Yeah. Because, yeah, there is the sense that, like, Annabeth has a sort of, like, individual pridefulness that she thinks she can do, like, essentially better than anybody else. But then there's the specific part where it's like, oh, she wants, she thinks that she can do better than the gods like there is part of this this where she thinks okay well some of the stuff that the gods have done i can do better than which then sort of draws back on that but that's sort of a little bit takes a little bit of a backseat like i think the way it frames kind of draws really heavily on our like modern understanding of the term so yeah i did sort of raise an eyebrow when we got to that passage like when, when i read that passage of the book i was like I don't know if that's hubris, really. Yeah. The, like, idea that you can do better. It's more like it would be hubris if she was so confident that she was just going ahead and doing it. Like, this is the thing is, like, hubris. Hubris is about action. Yeah. Committing an act of hubris. Like, hubris is a is a verb. Yeah. You can, you can hubris, you can hubridzane, like, to offend somebody is, like, the Greek verb. And you can, you can hubris someone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think our, <laughs> like, the way that hubris gets used in, like, the English language is not, it's not verbing. It's, like, a quality that you possess as opposed yeah. to, like, an action. It gets used as a synonym for, like, arrogance. Yeah. But I think that Annabeth is arrogant, but I don't think she's hubristic, or at least not yet. I mean, it's possible that we will, I can't remember what happens later in the series, and it's possible that we will get her being a know-it-all to a degree where she messes something up terribly and it all goes terribly (laughs) wrong. But I think that the image of, like, the improved world is not necessarily, to me, indicative of hubris as I understand it. Do you want to talk a little bit about fatal flaws? Because I don't actually know a whole lot about, like, fatal flaws in relationship to, like, the ancient Greek and Roman material. Yeah. Admittedly, the concept of a fatal flaw has been, like, kind of aggressively corrupted by, like, later literature in some ways. And also, I don't think I understand... I'm pretty sure that this comes from Aristotle's poetics, like a lot of other things that we consider... Like, again, to go back to something we talked about a little bit in 
the Mountain Goats episode, like the recognition scene, the reversal, these like oh yeah fundamentals of storytelling according to the Greeks, and by the Greeks I mean Aristotle. Yes. I think The Fatal Flaw is one of those. Okay. But uh, don't cite me on that. I learned about it in the context of like Shakespeare in high school, so yeah. it's definitely one of these things. So basically The Fatal Flaw is the thing that causes the reversal, so... The classic example is Oedipus. Mm -hmm. His fatal flaw is, like, his ignorance or whatever. Uh, It's, I don't know, it's complicated. It's basically, it's the thing that, it is the aspect of a hero's character that ultimately causes them to have something, have a reversal of fortune, and then die. The thing is... It's not really that coherently articulated in any particular myth that it's like, oh, this person's one thing that caused them to... Like, it's definitely a concept of storytelling, but it is a concept of storytelling articulated by literary theorists after these texts were produced. Yeah. That have then been perpetuated and put forth as, like, a necessary component of literature and narrative and storytelling when actually these were just like organic things that happened and what people are doing is they are picking something out it's not like an inherently necessary aspect of a character for them to have a fatal flaw many heroes have identifiable fatal flaws but It's not like when you're creating a hero character, you have to be like, oh, this is their fatal flaw that will ultimately cause their downfall. If a character is complex and three-dimensional, they will have flaws that will ultimately cause their downfall. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's just how it'd be. Like, for Odysseus, it is his pride, essentially. Yeah, because there is an example that we might talk about a little bit more later where Odysseus... Like, they get away from Polyphemus, and then Odysseus just can't stand that Polyphemus doesn't know who actually fucked him over. And so Odysseus yells back at Polyphemus, and then Polyphemus friggin', like, prays to Poseidon to curse him and have all of his men die. And guess what? All of his men die. Because Odysseus could not resist, like, taking credit for what he did. Yeah. He's extremely proud of himself and his own accomplishments. And this is what he hears from the sirens as well. Mm. So we get that exposure with the sirens. So when Odysseus listens to the sirens, he hears them telling the story of Troy Mm. and of his exploits at Troy, of all of the great deeds that were committed by the heroes in that war And it is extremely telling that that is what Odysseus most wants to hear, is about his own glory days. Mm. But that time is over, and if he can't let it go and be the person that he is now, instead of trying to be that, like the Iliadic Odysseus, he will die. And everybody will die. And it will be horrible. Yes. And And most of those things do happen. Yeah. And... (laughs) Polyphemus, with the encounter with Polyphemus, him asserting himself as a great hero is yet another example of that. So, do we want to talk about Circe? I I really don't have a lot to say about Circe, but yes, let's... Um, so, I think Circe is interesting because I think she's very similar. The way she's treated here is very similar to the way Medusa gets treated 
mm-hmm. in The Lightning Thief. Mm-hmm. Whereas Riordan has to deal with adapting these very misogynistic myths, and he's also choosing to use these particular characters as villains. So when you choose to use these female characters as villains, you like inevitably bring all of the misogyny along with you. Like yeah. it's just kind of inevitable. So like Cersei is framed here as a temptress in the same way she gets framed as a temptress in the Odyssey. I mean, it's obviously not quite the same since it's a children's book. There's no like sex here, for example. Yeah. But like, and I, this actually happened, Ryden does this quite a lot and I quite like it, is that the temptation for Percy is that he's like tired and he wants some food. <laughs> You know, yeah. like, like they, they, these are children and they've been through a lot and they're like, God, we just want some food. And somebody's like offering them some food and a place to sit down. And they know it's a trap and they yeah. still go because it's like, we're just tired. It's interesting because Circe in the Odyssey, and I mean, a lot of the stories of the Odyssey play on this in one way or another, but Circe's real villainy comes from the fact that she violates the laws of hospitality of of uh, Xenia, which is the yeah. like, Greek mm-hmm. word for kind of guest friendship and hospitality. It gets used for, for that anyways. Mm-hmm. And that she like lures people in with an offer of food and hospitality and then turns them into pigs. That is her crime. It's not really that she's turning people into pigs like that is that just happens to be the form of her violence it is more that she's that she's violating hospitality in that way and we get a lot of these in this book yeah tantalus Mm -hmm. cersei polyphemus are like the greatest hits of people who violated hospitality yeah and are villains in the mythology because of it as I said, the Odyssey plays on that theme a lot. Like, we get hospitality violated or, like, sustained mm-hmm. over and over and over and over and over again in the Odyssey. So if we sort of think about these myths, like, contextually in the in the sense of, like, okay, how are these reflecting anxieties that people would have had in the ancient world? If you're traveling in a strange place, like, you don't have Google. You're really dependent on other people. If you're staying in somebody's house... Even, like, a tavern. Yeah. There is this sense of, like, vulnerability and dependence on other people. So that, like, cultural idea of Xenia is, like, important for people's safety if they're traveling around. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It reflects a lot about what it was like to live and particularly to be a traveler in the classical world. Yeah. um, In the ancient Mediterranean. And... It's just interesting to see that stuff repeated here. Yeah. We actually do get this pretty on the nose uh, in the mouth of Hermes on page 98 when Hermes appears. First of all, Stan Hermes. Yes. Second of all, yeah, when Hermes first pops up in this book, he sits down with Percy on the beach and Percy is like, yeah, go ahead, sit down. And Hermes smiles and says, your hospitality does you credit. Yes, I love that. That bit is such a good bit of comedy, though, because Percy literally says, um, sure, and he doesn't know what's going on. And, and Hermes is like, thank you very much for your yeah, hospitality. Yeah, he's, so, he's so gracious. <laughs> yeah. Percy's yeah, like, it's really um, funny. what's happening. <laughs> um, yeah, no. But, yeah. It's, but it yeah. is there, and that is, like, the first indication that we get that this is going to be kind of important in yeah. this book. Yeah, and I think, too, the fact that, like, Hermes is a deity, like, devoted to traveling yes. and travelers, this is really important because I don't think People in the modern world generally think of ancient peoples as people who were traveling. But 
in the Mediterranean region, there was all sorts of cross Mediterranean like travel. That was there was so much trading going on, even from like the late Bronze Age, which was 3,500 years ago. Like, and yeah, and during the ancient Greek period, like there's a lot of there's a lot of trade, and especially trade on the sea. So yeah. we see these monsters like Scylla and Charybdis are really reflections of the the problems of sea travel. I took an entire course about Mediterranean maritime archaeology. <laughs> I have a lot to say about yeah. sea travel. But so basically traveling by boat is way faster than land travel, especially if you're thinking about the Mediterranean, like everybody sort of along the coastline of the Mediterranean. And the coastline is very wiggly and it yeah. takes a long time to go around. Yeah, but even going around, because you don't actually sail, people don't sail on open water very much because it's no, really dangerous. Really dangerous. But sailing is, even if you're sailing along the coastline versus, say, walking on the coastline, it's a lot faster. It's a lot easier to transport stuff. So that's why you get these monsters like Scylla and Charybdis in Greek mythology, because they are a reflection of the dangers of sailing, essentially. There is actually a great resource which we can put in the show notes, which is called, I, I believe it's called Orbis, and I think it's put together by Stanford. Yeah. And we... it's basically software that show that like you can input two points on a map of the ancient Mediterranean. It'll show you how long travel would take using like different methods, which is super cool and also super useful if you're trying to do like a research project. Because it'll guesstimate how long it would take to sail from like Athens to Crete or whatever you want to know so yeah no it's very cool so I have a few interesting things to point out about stuff that's going on in the sort of like climax of the book where they're fighting Polyphemus on the island so the first bit is like basically that Riordan takes bits of the mythology and and gives them to very interesting characters like Grover essentially has been pulling a Penelope yes, <laughs> this whole time. Yes. So uh, because Polyphemus's eyesight is bad because Odysseus stabbed him in the eye 2,000 years ago or whatever, he thinks that Grover is a female Cyclops because he's wearing a wedding dress. And Grover is trying to like delay their wedding by unraveling his uh, like bridal train, which is what Penelope does to try and avoid the suitors marrying her she's like oh i have to weave this burial shroud for a family member it's it's odysseus's father okay yeah um and she's like i can't i'm not gonna like deal with you guys until i've done weaving this burial shroud and she she basically unravels her weaving during the night to delay it so there's an interesting thing to give to grover Um, yeah it was very it was very funny. I was like, okay, this is great. <laughs> Thank you to Rick Riordan for this incredibly clever use of a fun myth that I like. Yes. There is also, like, another interesting thing that happens during the climax is that Percy is given an opportunity to kill Polyphemus, but he decides not to. Because Polyphemus is definitely a lot more... He's a lot more of a character than a lot of the other monsters. Like, even, you know, there's there's monsters, obviously, like the Hydra, which is, you know, basically just an animal. But even some of the other monsters, like... Like the Lacergonians. Yeah, they're they're a- kind of comic a- relief. A.K.A. the Canadians. <laughs> yeah. As Canadians, I don't know about you, Allison, but I find American jokes about how Canadians are basically foreign creatures... 
like, extremely funny. Oh, yeah. Strange wild men from the north. I mean, Lystragonians are specifically, like, cold giant. They're, like, frost giant type yeah. things. But I, I, I just love the way he writes it. He's like, Percy's like, I can't pronounce that. Like, what's the translation? And it's like, Annabeth thought for a moment. Canadians. <laughs> yeah. It's really good. Yeah. But yeah, no, you're right. Polyphemus is more of a... He's definitely more of a character than a lot of the other monsters. And also that it's been this entire struggle, the, the, like, all along that, like, Tyson is a Cyclops, but being a Cyclops doesn't automatically make him a monster. Yeah. And this idea that, like, the Cyclopes are actually not monsters in the like, more metaphorical sense, despite being monstrous, despite existing in monstrous bodies. Yes. And I think this is a really sort of, I think Tyson is sort of almost acting as a surrogate for having, like, a disabled sibling or somebody in your life, like, as a child who you are close to who is... Visibly disabled. Visibly disabled, Visibly, like, different or, like, development, like, visibly, visibly in their sort of behavior, like, perhaps developmentally sort of different than you are. And, like, the difficulties in in sort of, like, navigating that as a child. Because, like, Percy's own sort of frustrations and, like, complicated emotions about Tyson come up because he gets sort of, like, made fun of for his association with Tyson. And then he, like, also feels bad about it because he really does care about Tyson quite a bit yeah so yeah just in these I feel like Rick Riordan really does continue to really like impress me with how he navigates complicated emotions that children feel and how he sort of like yeah presents ways that children can deal with it's like it's definitely something that is very relatable to children I Um, also think in general that Riordan does a good job dealing with disability and disabled bodies and and brains like he addresses both physical and mental disability mm-hmm. in these books in ways that are compassionate and complicated and interesting. We also get another kind of... There's not a huge number of mentions of it, but we get talk about how Percy's ADHD has resulted in him getting kicked out of school over and over again. And we all, there's a great little passage where... Annabeth is trying to be euphemistic about the Cyclopes in a conversation when Tyson's standing right there and she tries to spell Cyclopes out, like Cyclops Mm -hmm. out loud and can't do it because of her dyslexia, which I just was like, yes, because Annabeth is so smart. She gets referred to as smart all the Mm -hmm. time. Being strategic and wise and just like intelligent is her primary character trait in a lot of ways. But she can't spell because she's dyslexic. Yeah. And it doesn't detract from her being characterized as intelligent. Yeah. Which, like, yes. Well, because I think it's really interesting to have all of the half-bloods have both dyslexia and ADHD because then you really get the sense of, like, okay, like, all of these different kids with all of these different personalities can have these learning disabilities and still have all sorts of different personalities and interests and be like capable in certain ways and that's really great and also like especially like girls i think don't get portrayed a lot as having learning disabilities especially stuff like yeah. adhd uh, i will say that we don't i don't have adhd but i know a lot of people who do and i know that people with adhd have struggles 
beyond just book learning. Like, there's mm, a lot, yeah. there's a lot of like executive function issues and like kind of emotional balance issues and like all kinds of other stuff that can come with ADHD and like comorbid neurodivergence and all kinds of other things mm -hmm. that are really common with it with in people with ADHD that we don't see a lot of like Percy is described as having ADHD and the consequences of his ADHD get told to us but we don't see him coping with having ADHD and developing strategies to function and stuff like that like having mechanisms to just like cope with his life which every person with ADHD has to have in order to do anything even as kids yeah obviously it's easier when you're a kid and you're in school and there's external structure and you have your parents around and so on and so forth to like help mm -hmm. cope yeah. with stuff that of course I'm a young adult all of my friends with ADHD are also young adults and having to learn to navigate being on your own and like manage your own symptoms which Percy's not in that position yet, so that kind of makes sense, but I'll be interested to see as we go along if we start to get some yeah. of that. Although we do get the sense, I think honestly we get more of that actually in the first book, because we do actually get more discussion of his like school environment in the first book, and about how he like does really sort of struggle with like like his attention in particular and how and we see this with with um when Chiron is teaching him and obviously he doesn't know he's Chiron that Chiron is finding these ways to make it sort of interesting and engaging for him but also how he's he's never really had a lot of supports yeah and especially when he's being sent to these boarding schools like he doesn't really have these sort of supports around him to help sort of like manage the different way that his brain works but then of course when they're on these adventures you know they're not really you know yeah. it's not really about like managing your ADHD right they're well, like we're trying course, to not get killed <laughs> and of course the in-universe like justification is that having the, the ADHD is actually an expression of having those like kind of overactive instincts towards that are useful in high stress and combat situations yeah like the ones that Percy is constantly in when they're on their quests yeah so it doesn't become an issue yes which well we'll see as we go along I may have further thoughts about yeah. this but I'm also not a psychologist and I don't have ADHD yeah all right should we move into post-colonial theory half an hour yes so okay so we were talking earlier about tyson and polyphemus and cyclopes as monsters a little bit this came up and i wanted to bring up a like academic theory concept that i studied a little bit last year when i was working on my master's which is reading the Cyclopes as, and specifically Polyphemus, as like a metaphor for colonialism. So in the Odyssey, Polyphemus lives alone on his island. There is another island with more Cyclopes like nearby, but those Cyclopes just like live off of the land. They hunt and gather, they forage, whatever. They eat the meat that they can hunt. Polyphemus, herds sheep like he farms mm -hmm. and he is framed as bad as like different and weird because of that and there's this kind of this kind of thing with like 
agriculture as a as like civilization and this like idea of polyphemus being more quote unquote civilized than the other cyclopes because he farms. Mm, yeah. This is an incredibly colonialist concept. Like native people who don't farm were civilized actually. Yes. Well, uh, <laughs> the concept of quote unquote civilization is a lie. Yeah, it's a lot. There's, There's a lot to unpack there. Uh, meaningful and complex ways of existing that don't involve like farming and cities. Yeah. And there's kind of a way to read Polyphemus as having, like, appropriated civilization from humans, and that he is doing this kind of invalid version of civilization because he it's not for him. Oh, boy. But he is doing it, and, and also he's doing it wrong. Like, when Odysseus and the other sailors show up, Polyphemus is quote-unquote civilized. He farms, he has agriculture. Mm -hmm. He does civilized, I'm making air quotes every time I say that word, things. And so when they arrive, there's kind of an expectation that that Polyphemus will follow the norms of civilization. But he doesn't. And specifically, he violates the norm of hospitality. Yeah. When you show up in somebody's house, there's kind of an expectation that you will be provided with a meal. Instead, they are provided as a meal. (laughs) Odysseus and his buddies show up and they get eaten instead of getting to eat. And that is like, it's a complete perversion of the concept of civilization that the Greeks understood. And it is very much tied to the idea that like Polyphemus is not doing civilization correctly. Yeah. And... There's this very, like, colonial thing that underlies the entire encounter between Odysseus and Polyphemus in the Odyssey. Mm -hmm. In Sea of Monsters, we get some of this. It's not as explicit because it's we're not having an encounter between Odysseus, a landholder who rules over an island and farms the goats there and grows the crops, and Polyphemus, a landholder who owns an island grows the crops, farms the animals. Oh, right? Like, I, that, like these very two people who are kind of... Yeah, these <laughs> that two, I am now just realizing. Thank you. Yeah. These two people that who, are, who are sort of similar in status, but one of them's doing it right and one of them's doing it wrong. Yeah. We don't really have that in Sea of Monsters. Yes. Well, because Percy is a child. Yeah. And does not have a farm. And it's the 21st century. <laughs> but we have something else. So... I'm going to, like, make an argument here, Mm -hmm. which is that I think that we are getting Polyphemus as a kind of decolonized person. He is a col- he is framed in this. This is going to be a- this is going to be a take. Okay. He- Polyphemus is framed in Sea of Monsters as a colonized subject who has decolonized violently. That he is successfully living on his own, prospering, doing his own little thing. He has his own island. He has acquired the means by robbing violently from the people who did violence to him in order to take over his land and steal his resources, which is to say the Greek heroes. He's stolen the Golden Fleece from them and used it to make himself wealthy. Tyson is set up in contrast to Polyphemus by Polyphemus himself, to Mm -hmm. be fair, as somebody who is still a colonized subject, that he is in service to the Greek heroes, despite not really being like them. 
he's he's not one of them. Basically, Polyphemus looks at Tyson and says, you're trying to deconstruct the master's house with the master's tools, which, as we know from your friend and mine, Audrey Lord, you can't do. Yes. <laughs> which I do have a sort of broader point about this. It, and th- th- there's this really... And, well... Fr- before I go into my broader point, I just wanted to say, yeah, I think that particular passage about Tyson, like, really supports that reading. Like, your reading would be sort of more like a distant from the text interpretation if that particular passage was not, like, specifically in there, like, framing yeah. Tyson in that particular way. So the passage that we're talking about, it's at the beginning of chapter 16, page 225 in this edition, Polyphemus calls Tyson a traitor to his kind and Tyson responds, I am not a traitor. You serve mortals, Polyphemus shouted, thieving humans. Polyphemus throws a a boulder and then Tyson says, not a traitor and you are not my kind. So there's this kind of rejection of himself as a member of an othered group by Tyson. He Mm -hmm. is trying to assert that he is kind of one of them which is to say, you know, a half-blood, a demigod, a child of the gods. Yes. Rather than a cyclops, like the same kind of being that Polyphemus is, on the, like, moral and ethical grounds that he is a different kind of person. Yes. Which is accurate, but, like, they are the same race. Yeah. Not to put too fine a point on it. Yes. So to sort of, like talk about the kind of broader politics of the work which i'm sure we will talk more about especially as we sort of get into the later books like rick riordan does believe that you can dismantle the master's house with the master's tools like that is what the text says and like continues to say because we see this with luke right like like the contrast between luke and percy like percy does not agree with everything that the gods do he does like clearly demonstrate his displeasure with the fact that he's being sort of like used as a pawn but he doesn't decide to actively fight against them in the way that luke does and luke is framed as evil for doing so and also like particularly violent i mean we do see this in this book where again he like puts everybody's lives in danger people like him his fellow half-bloods he puts their lives in danger in order to sort of um, bring about this like broader plan so yeah rick riordan definitely he thinks that you can change the system from the inside yes that is and he's resistant there's a certain resistance to like the idea that you do have to be you have to remove yourself and like this is the thing, is at the end of the book, Tyson goes off to be one of the good Cyclopes who works in an underground forge and makes weapons for the Half-Bloods, but isn't really part of their society. Yeah. Like, the Cyclopes are racialized and framed as as colonized people. Like, it, I just, it's hard for me to... Re- like, I'm already predisposed to that reading because I've done this work yeah. on Polyphemus as a like a colonized subject Mm -hmm. but with that in mind it's really blatant in this book if you are willing to read that in there and Riordan doesn't unpack it and in fact doesn't really subvert it at all he just kind of lampshades it that like Polyphemus is bad for wanting to take something from the half-bloods and from the gods yeah despite the fact that he's been treated really poorly like yes he's a cannibal Mm -hmm. but he is he a cannibal? He's not a human. 
So is eating humans cannibalism? No, he's just bad because he's a creature that preys on humans and humans are inviolate because we're humans. And so the stories that we tell about ourselves are always going to frame people who kill us as bad, even if it's just like their nature. Yeah, well, the thing is, is a lot of the the polyphemus did nothing wrong is what I'm saying. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. We've got a we've got a cannibalism supporter over here. Polyphemus did some things wrong. I want that on a shirt. I do not support cannibalism. Do not kill and eat other humans. Cannibalism oh my is bad. God. Oh. Murder is bad. Oh. Throwing giant rocks at people is bad. Training your sheep to eat meat is kind of cool though. I that is not good for the sheep. The vegans are not gonna like this. Like, polyphemus <laughs> eating people, whatever, but feeding meat to sheep, that's Somebody where... Somebody called PETA. <laughs> that's where polyphemus really crosses the line. Okay, we're losing it. Yeah. Yeah, so I think the thing is, is about the the material is that if you draw directly from, like, especially, yeah, like the Odyssey, the material does kind of have a colonialist mindset. Oh, yeah. Like, like you can really draw a direct sort of line between our sort of modern colonial conceptions of the other and, like, Greek conceptions yeah. of the people who are not Greek. Like, there's a specific world, like, the word barbarian comes from the Greek barbaroi, and it means, like, people who are not part of the Greek culture. And so that's what a lot of these, like, antagonists in the Odyssey are, is that they're barbaroi that Odysseus is encountering. Yeah, so, they're, they're othered people. Yeah. And to draw another connection, because Rick Riordan really went off with doing all of the most, like, othering colonialist, like, mythos in this one. <laughs> Riordan also makes use of the centaurs mm -hmm. in this book, who are probably the prime example of a group that is aggressively othered and even have an example of this, like, of an exceptional individual who becomes part of the group because he knows how to behave like a good yeah. human, yeah. which is to say Chiron. Yeah. He is the good centaur who has learned to behave in society, which is, like, very black skin, white masks. Like... Yeah. Thank you to Franz Fanon for talking about the way that colonized subjects and like othered racialized people can take on the guise of their colonizers mm -hmm. in order to fit in and be successful in the paradigm of colonialism. Chiron is absolutely one of those. Y yeah. And I think too, just to sort of like draw it back specifically like to the centaurs, like what particularly well, yeah. is so sort of like colonialist about centaurs is it in the ancient greek depictions of centaurs is like centaurs are essentially like they're the people in the north who ride on horses yeah but you know they get turned into half person half horse and they're portrayed as being these violent people who will steal your wives specifically <laughs> specifically they will steal your wives because you invite them to your wedding because they're your neighbors and they're very chill until they get into the wine and because they are strange foreigners who don't drink wine they get really drunk and misbehave which is not a thing that Greek people do because Greek people drink wine all the time and know how to practice temperance in their drinking and like be restrained even when a little drunk. But the centaurs have no restraint. 
because this is a cultural thing. It's a cultural staple mm -hmm. of the Greeks that they have no familiarity with. And so they overindulge and they go crazy and they steal all the women and they start a big fight and they pound history's first trans man into the ground with a giant rock. The Centauramaki, which is the like classic version of that story, it is the wedding of King Perithuis to a woman named Hippodamea, which means tamer of horses. God damn it. Mm -hmm. He's the king of the Lapiths. It's it's a thing. The centaurs and the Lapiths. Yeah. Yeah, we really do sort of just get these like these ancient Greek colonial concepts that yeah, are directly linked to our own colonial concepts. I mean the like to to go back to like the idea that barbarous people do not how to hold their alcohol. Like you see that as a stereotype about indigenous peoples in North America. Oh yeah. We're just like enhancing the racism and colonialism yeah, that the like, ancient Greeks came up with. This, <laughs> like, I hate to break it to, like, terrible colonial people forever all the way back in history, but if you give somebody a mind-altering substance that they've never had before, they're probably gonna behave a little bit off. Yeah. And in Sea of Monsters, the centaurs show up and they are, like, drunk party people. Yes. With no control and are just really wild. Which, they aren't racialized in the way that, except for the one guy with the native face paint. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, they're supposed to look like kind of sports fans or something like that. Yeah, and this sport... is a scene that I've, a thing that I see white people doing all the time. I don't think they're supposed to be, no. like, natives. No, well, like, they're described as also as, like, frat boys like yeah. i think they have like hats like one of those like weird hats that like delivers the beer directly to your mouth yeah so like i think that the i think that the like native face paint that the one centaur is described as wearing is supposed to be problematic yes the centaurs aren't racialized as native or black or just like foreigners is in the way that they are in the greek conception but they still retain all of those other traits yeah we did about 20 minutes of ranting on colonialism, so I feel like that's good. We've hit our quota. We've yes. hit our colonialism quota for the yes. episode. So I feel like now we can move on to random bits and bobs, which the first one I have to say is something I forgot to say when we were talking about Cersei, which is that her Homeric, one of her Homeric epithets, which like a Homeric epithet, which we may have explained what it is before, but it, it basically is in these epic oral poems when the poets were sort of trying to make up stuff on the go they would have these little phrases that they could rely on upon that fit the meter and so people are referred to not only by name but by a little epithet so one of Circe's is polypharmacos which is basically like the lady who's got lots of potions yeah. um which I, I just love that I just love that for her yeah um, yeah We'll do an episode on Madeline Miller's Circe yeah. at some point, too, and we can really go deep on the concept of pharmacone and, like, witchcraft mm -hmm. in the Greek world. I, I think it's really interesting. I'll, here, I'll add my little mini note on Circe. I read the entire passage with Circe as sort of an oblique criticism of diet culture, and I think that that was really good. Shout out to Rick Riordan for having the person who's like, don't you hate what you see when you look in the mirror? Don't you want to drink a magic potion to change your body into something perfect? Just drink this meal replacement drink and you will turn into your perfect mm. vision of yourself. Being an evil witch who wants to turn Percy into a pig and probably kill him. Yes, I like that. <laughs> and also it's... it's yeah, now that I, because I'd never read it that way, but that's really interesting. And I think definitely something he's doing on purpose. Yeah. Um, but I also think it's really awesome that, like, 
we don't see it through Annabeth's eyes. We see it through Percy's eyes. Like, Percy is allowed to be self-conscious about his physical appearance yeah, as, like, like, a teenage boys, boy. Boys also have body image issues. Yeah. A lot of messaging about, like, oh, you have to be confident in the way you look is targeted towards girls because so much of women's value in the society that we live in is hung on what they look like both in the negative way and also in the sort of positive reaffirming way. Like, why should I be proud of what I look like? I don't actually care. I have other things about myself that I would prefer to be proud of. I'm happy to be neutral about my appearance. Mm -hmm. Suffice to say, I've had 10 years worth of learning to be self-conscious about my body and then unlearning to be self-conscious about my body. But I was just at the beginning of the learning to be self-conscious stage when I was like 12, like Percy is in this book. And so is everybody, I think. And it's important to acknowledge that and that it does happen to everybody and it takes time to, like, cope with that. Yeah, and that it is, like, immediately a tempting thing for Percy to, like, change the way that he looks. And that it's not just, like, oh, I wish that my, like, zits were gone, Mm -hmm. but also that he wishes that he dressed cooler. Yeah. Because he's poor. Yeah, no, there's definitely a class anxiety in there that's that's very, like, The thing is, rich kids can afford to be beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yep. I do have one more note on Cersei. When she gets introduced, um, when they're first arriving on Aya on the island, mm-hmm. it doesn't get named, but that mm-hmm. is the name of her island. There is a passage where they're talking about how, as they arrive, they can hear a woman singing, and uh, and I quote: "Her words were in some language other than ancient Greek." but just as old, Minoan maybe, Mm. or something like that. Mm. Now, okay, so I have mixed feelings about this one. Mycenaean is identifiable as Proto-Greek. We have enough of Linear B that we've managed to figure out that it was probably some form of Proto-Greek. Minoan, we don't know. Calling it Minoan is like a bit of a gripe because like I mean none of it should be called yeah I mean this is this is an incredibly this is you know what this is a petty gripe with Arthur Evans this is what this is this is not a petty gripe with Rick Riordan yeah and I mean the truth is I think going with Mycenaean would have made more sense because Percy can also kind of understand some of what she's talking about like he he can understand Mm -hmm. some of the words which Mycenaean is identifiably proto-Greek Minoan we have no idea but he Riordan is obviously just reaching for the oldest thing, Mm -hmm. which I can kind of understand. Age of Heroes, you know, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's not accurate, but it accomplishes the thing that he wants. I just don't like it. I wish people would stop talking about the Minoans unless they are specialists in the Minoans. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Everyone else should go away about the Minoans. <laughs> because we just don't know. And, like, I admit that as a trained classicist who does not know anything about the Minoans. I mean, I know some stuff about the Minoans because I have taken a number of classes where we've, like, covered the archaeology. You can't actually talk about it in archaeology because there's lots of archaeology. Yeah. It's more difficult to talk about in a historical framework because we don't have texts. So I, I don't really have any petty gripes. I just have some... um small things that I think are, like, hilarious and or great. Okay. In particular, things about, like, 
Riordan as a writer and like the way he's using structure just being like oh that's so good like the fact that the boombox is a plot device yes like it's a perfect Chekhov's gun the boombox is brought up when Chiron is leaving and then it's later used to get rid of the, the birds. birds yeah oh my god I just <laughs> yes I love chef's kiss love beautiful a, love a boombox as a Chekhov's gun yeah no that's beautiful I noticed like because you know Chekhov's boombox <laughs> Chekhov's boombox. Because when you're like, you know, when I read this as a kid, I don't know what Chekhov's gun was, but like as an adult, I can really appreciate that. Totally. Um, the other thing is like the bit where Ryden uses foreshadowing really well when the bully like promises to kill him in dodgeball, and then like there are actually people who try to kill him. Yeah. Like, yeah. Beautiful. I don't know if I ever got concussed, but I definitely got injured getting hit in the face with a dodgeball as a child. Being told that you're going to be killed in dodgeball is honestly scary enough, even without the Lystragonians. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's really good. This the, this book has good, like, it all comes around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have one more small thing that I want to mention before we move on to, like, final notes. There's a great mention at the very beginning of the book of Percy, who has a photo of Annabeth standing in front of the Lincoln Memorial, looking proud as if she'd built it, which sent me because the Lincoln Memorial looks exactly like the Parthenon. I I missed I, I missed that it was about the Lincoln Memorial. I've read this so many times. Okay, so so context. Me and Julia last year went to see the Lincoln Memorial and we looked at it and we're like this is just the temple to Abraham Lincoln. It's straight up the Parthenon except it's a temple to Abraham Lincoln instead of a temple to Athena. Yeah like. It is straight up a temple to Abraham Lincoln. Somebody had left flowers at the foot of the statue. I was like the only thing that could make this more a temple to Abraham Lincoln is if somebody started sacrificing a goat on the steps. Yeah absolutely. (laughs) Like like there is a cult statue Inside a Greek there is a, temple. There is a giant and it's, it's Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> and it's so funny because it's all this like super Christian like speech making that's up on the walls on the inside. Yeah. But it's straight up like, is this not just idolatry? Like, is this not <laughs> you literally erecting a temple to somebody that is not your God? <laughs> oh my god. Anyway, it was so funny. But it, it looks just like the Parthenon, which was a temple to Athena. So it really, like, sent me that it's like, oh, this child of Athena, like, standing in front of this <laughs> piece of architecture that looks just like the one that was erected to honor her mother 2,000 years ago, <laughs> 2,500 years ago. Anyway, that was my other thing that I wanted to bring up. Oh, man. But we can move on now. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to Hermes for stating the, like, theme of the book at the beginning with the hospitality (laughs) comment, and then stating the theme of the series at the end. Hermes comes back and meets with Percy again, Mm -hmm. and they're talking about Luke, and they're talking about the relationship between a godly parent and their children, because Hermes is like, I actually do love my children, but I can't be around all the time. And I'm sure it's the same for you and Poseidon. Like, it's not that he doesn't care about you. This is on page 258. 
Hermes says, but I believe if you give it some thought, you will see that Poseidon has been paying attention to you. He has answered your prayers. I can only hope that someday Luke may realize the same about me. Whether you feel like you succeeded or not, you reminded Luke who he was. You spoke to him. Percy says, I tried to kill him. Hermes shrugged. Families are messy. Immortal families are eternally messy. Sometimes the best we can do is to remind each other that we're related, for better or worse, and try to keep the maiming and killing to a minimum. I I love those lines so much. Like, it's such a thesis statement for this series. Yeah. That, like, fundamentally, the Percy Jackson books, specifically Percy Jackson and the Olympians, is about a weird, messed up extended family coping with the fact that they're related. Oh, absolutely. 100%. Like, this book really nails those themes in very explicit ways because Mm -hmm. of the whole thing with Percy and Tyson. Yeah. Like, this really brings it out and makes it clear what the deal is going to be in the way that it doesn't really, like, it doesn't really happen in the first book because Riordan's setting up all the world building in the first one and the characters. But this is the book where he manages to, like, uplift his themes a little bit into the light to make it clear what kind of story this is and what he's dealing with. And we talked a lot in our first episode about the fact that these books are fundamentally about family relationships and particularly relationships between parents and children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The fact that all of these, all of the kids in the book essentially have these like absent parents is really interesting. And it's really dealing with that the challenge of having a uh, difficult relationship with your parents yeah yeah yeah, and a difficult relationship with your parents as a child yeah when you don't have any sort of control over that relationship though i do like that there's an acknowledgement that adults have difficult relationships with their parents too yeah because chiron chiron is chronos's son yes and he mentions that which i think is really interesting because it points out To an adult reader, like, I read that and I go, oh, well, that's, like, really neat because you can understand how Chiron, like, on an adult-to-adult level, it makes it so obvious how Chiron is such a good mentor to all of these half-blood kids with their messed-up relationships with their godly parents because he has a huge amount of empathy for that because Mm -hmm. he has a messed-up relationship with his godly parent. But on a kid level, like, reading it as a child... I don't remember it, but I can imagine being a kid and reading this and going, oh, my parents, my teachers, my figures to whom I relate as, like, an adult authority Mm -hmm. have their own problems with adult authorities. Yeah. It's a good book. And I think this one, much as it's shorter and there's kind of less going on in it, there's a lot of setup happening, this one really introduces the themes of the series in a way that is very poignant and very functional. Yeah, absolutely. On a narrative level, without being boring. Yeah. And I can't wait to read more of these on the podcast, because the next one coming up might be my favorite of all of the, all at least the the first five books. So, yes. Thanks for listening to Classically Trained. This podcast is hosted and produced by Allison Marlin and Julia Peroni on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. You can listen and subscribe to this podcast on our website, classicallytrainedpod.podbean.com, and anywhere podcasts are found. 
If you'd like to reach us, we can be emailed at classicallytrainedpod at gmail.com, contacted via Twitter at classicallypod, or you can leave a review. Finally, some acknowledgements. We'd first like to thank Nicholas Judy and Dark Fantasy Studio, who produced our wonderful music. We would also like to thank the Society for Classical Studies for their help in supporting this podcast. Our next episode in two weeks will be on the 2004 film Troy, starring Brad Pitt. As always, be well, and do not, under any circumstances, do as the Romans did.